Father, we just again come to you and uh, we're so blessed to, to be able to open your word by your spirit and to hear what you have to say to us each and every Sunday and each and every day, Lord, as we look at your word. It's your, it's your uh, word to us. And uh, Lord, if we want to know more about you, we, we study your word. And today, Lord, uh, we're going to look at the topic of the rainbow and we're going to see uh, what the rainbow truly means, uh, what it means to you and what it should mean to us. It's, it's lost its meaning in our society today, Lord. It's been a long time since that flood, and few people believe in that flood. And, and uh, so, Lord, help us to, to look back at that time and when you made that sign of the rainbow, and it's still there, Lord. Thank goodness it's still there because it's a message of your mercy and your grace that we all need, and especially in this world in which we live today. Father, uh, we can look at the rainbow and know that we still have a future and a hope in you. So, so let us look at again at this text and, and glean from it, and, and Lord, be encouraged by it. We ask that you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This past week, I saw a picture on the news of a rainbow flag flying over uh, New Jersey uh, as uh, alongside the American flag uh, as at the Capitol they celebrated uh, a new law that they passed uh, which requires that LGBT history be taught in every school in the state. Uh, Now, I could talk an hour about what's wrong with that, uh, about how stupid it is, really, uh, about how tragic it is, about how dangerous and discriminatory it's going to be towards Christians in that state. And I could also talk about how that situation is probably going to come to Louisiana before we know it. I mean, who would have thought... I mean, just a couple of weeks ago here in Lafayette, while we were having church, they had drag queens reading in a public library to three-year-olds. That's a pretty sad state of affairs. And so uh, uh, it, it, it looks pretty bad. And, 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 and uh, the only commentary I would make about what happened in New Jersey is this. I bet when they put this information, these chapters in the history textbooks in their state that when they, and one of the chapters will probably be about this guy, Harvey Milk, but I bet you when they discuss Harvey Milk, because he's kind of their poster child, their martyr who died for their cause, I bet you they won't talk about the fact that he lived with 16-year-old, 15 and 16-year-old boys his whole adult life before he was killed, so so that won't be in there. and for sure, I can tell you what won't be in the textbooks. They won't say anything about what the Bible, which is the most accurate historical book we have on earth, they won't say anything about what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. Uh, they, won't, they certainly won't talk about uh, how it's an abomination to the Lord. They won't talk about how, I, I don't think the historical story of Sodom and Gomorrah will be in there either. Uh, so, uh, uh, you... you See this rainbow flag. I, I remember seeing the White House uh, decked out in the colors of the rainbow uh, to celebrate uh, the fact that the Supreme Court ruling, that, that the landmark Supreme Court ruling that, 
that uh, opened up uh, every, opened it up for every state to to marry homosexuals. Uh, I, I see these rainbow flags, and it's really sad. And I and I and you got to ask yourself, how did we get to this point? I mean. I mean, have you ever wondered why the LGBT movement even chose the rainbow flag for their uh, symbol of their movement? Uh, There's several theories, but the most common theory is that they were inspired by Julie Garland's song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And that verse that says, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, Skies Are Blue. And what they meant by taking that rainbow as their symbol was that that uh, Harvey Milk and Gilbert Baker and some of these early uh, leaders in the homosexual movement, uh, what they meant by that was that if they fought hard enough for human sexual, I mean, for, for homosexual rights, that blue skies were ahead and that one day they would live in a world where homosexual, they could uh, live out their homosexual desires and eventually even society would uh, accept their behavior as normal. And, hey, they've been pretty successful in that movement. Uh, But let me give you my theory why they chose the rainbow uh, to symbolize their movement. Uh, I'll tell you why, because uh, it is a sacred symbol in the Bible. And it's a... And in... Choosing this sign, or choosing this rainbow uh, as the sign of their movement, they were saying loud and clear, we don't care what God thinks about our behavior. It's almost as if they were uh, in the face of God saying, hey, we're going to take the rainbow, we're going to capture the rainbow, and it's not going to be a sign from the Bible, it's going to be a sign of our aberrant behavior. And when you see what's going on in New Jersey, and then you see what's going on in New York and California where they're passing these laws, and Virginia is about to pass one, where they can kill babies uh, at, at nine months. And so uh, you see all of this, and you wonder why God doesn't just wipe us off the map. I mean, why he doesn't just destroy this nation, really destroy this whole world, because the whole world is going that way. Well, the reason he doesn't is because of the meaning behind the rainbow. The rainbow is the sign of the Noahic covenant. That's, that really what the Noahic covenant does, we're going to see in today's lesson, it stays the hand of God's judgment as he suffers long with the wickedness of this world. Last week, and if you'll turn in your Bibles, we'll go to chapter number 8 for a minute. Last week, in chapter number 8, we were introduced to the Noahic Covenant in the next to last verse, verse number 21 of chapter number 8. And listen to what the Lord says. He says, and I'm going to reword it a little bit. I'm looking at, you see where it says, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake? Let Let me reword that verse. It's, that part of the verse. It says, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done through this flood. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, here's what the Noahic covenant is all about. 
God is promising that he's not going to destroy the earth like he did during the flood. God knew that when Noah and his family got off of that boat, that the heart of man had not changed. The heart of man was still desperately wicked, and the world was going to come become wicked very quickly after the flood, after Noah's generations began to, 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 to expand, that the world was going to become just as wicked as it was before the flood. And so what God does, he, it's almost as if he ties his hands and says, no matter how wicked it gets, I'm not ever going to destroy the earth again until history is over. When I say ever, until history is over, uh, with a flood or really with any type of judgment. And so that's what the Noahic covenant is all about. Really, why does God do that? To give everybody, a, because God is full of mercy, and he wants to give everybody a chance and a shot of salvation before they die and they face the final judgment of hell. So this is what the Noahic covenant that we're going to be looking at today, it's a covenant of mercy and the long-suffering of God, and it's attested to in the sky by a rainbow. And we're going to look at that rainbow today as we look at the very first part of uh, chapter number 9. So go with me to chapter number 9, and that's where we're going to begin today in verse number 1. And it says here, So God blessed Noah and said to his sons, and, and said, and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now Noah is the new head of the human race. And so God's going to bless him. This is more of a blessing than a command. And God's going to bless him and his sons in a way that they will be fruitful and they'll have lots of children and lots of grandchildren. And then it says in verse number 2, it says, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea, they are given to your hand. Now that's interesting. What God does here, he puts fear into the heart of animals so that they fear human beings. And that's a good thing because you watch how animals populate and, you know, a a wolf would have a litter of 10, 12 puppies, whereas a a man and wife are probably going to have only have one child. And so all of these animals are going to populate much more rapidly than the human beings. And some of these Animals are dangerous uh, to mankind, and so they would threaten the survival of mankind. And so what God does, he puts fear, the fear of man, into the heart of these animals. And that's still the case today. You see some of the most dangerous animals in the world, and they're afraid of people. Uh, I remember my dad always telling me, you know, when we were when I was growing up in Mississippi as a young boy, we lived in a place where there was lots of water moccasins and lots of copperhead snakes. And I remember my dad telling me, hey, you don't need to be afraid of them. They're a lot more afraid of you than you are of them. Well, that wasn't true. <laughs> I was a lot more afraid of them than they were afraid of me. I can tell you, when, that, when, uh, when, that, when I saw a snake, I was running so fast, you know, and I'd look back and and uh, he was running one way and I was running the other way, but I was probably running faster than he was because I was scared of those snakes, still scared of snakes. And, and so God does this to protect us from now we, the population of mankind is so large and we've kind of uh, moved the animal kingdom or limited the, 
the population of the animal kingdom to a point where maybe that wouldn't be necessary now. But, there's, but animals still fear us. And, and, and in the case of Noah, it was definitely necessary. Then look now at verse number 3. It says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Now, this is different from the way it was before. He says, I have given you all things, clean and unclean animals. That's interesting to me, too. Because once the law is given, only the clean animals would be eaten by the Jews, by God's people. Uh, And he says, I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. And so, for the first time, that men have permission, men and women have permission, to eat the meat of animals. And they could eat any kind of animal that they want. And again, the Jews later would be told, you can only eat the clean animals. You can't eat of the unclean animals. Now, there were health reasons behind that, but the main reason behind that was to make the Jews different from the rest of the world, to separate them from the rest of the world, to separate them unto God, to separate them as God's people. But up until that time, until the Mosaic Law was given, men and women were free to eat uh, the flesh of, of animals, and, and uh, uh, clean or unclean. And then look at, uh, but, but every human being gets this command. When you're eating of the animals, look at verse number 4. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life. That is its blood. Now notice life and blood to God are synonymous. They're the same thing because the life is in the blood. You you look at the blood of, of an animal. You look at the blood of a human being. And what flows through that blood? The chemicals uh, that are necessary for life, uh, the, the, uh, that the, 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 they flow from the stomach, from the food that we eat. The air, the oxygen that we breathe flows through uh, the body uh, by the blood. And uh, so it's the blood that makes the rest of the body function. Uh, you just stop the blood flow of any animal or any human being, and they're going to lose consciousness and, uh, and the th- the thought process, as, as the thought processes of the brain shut down, and with, without thought and without consciousness, then you have no life. And so the life is in the blood. That's why we're told in Leviticus 17, 11, uh, that the life is in the blood. And then it, it also says, it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. Why is that? Because the blood is sacred to God. Why is the blood sacred to God? Because the life is in the blood. And the sacrificial system was based upon the blood of animals. They sprinkled the blood on the altar, and the blood covered their sins. That was part of the Mosaic system. Uh, but but uh, if, if the blood of animals is sacred, how much more precious is the blood of Jesus Christ? Because it is the blood of God. And not only does that blood atone for our sin, that, in that blood is the life of God. And so when we're sprinkled with that blood, we're given the very life of God. And so the blood was sacred to God. And so God tells human beings from the very beginning, you don't drink the blood. You don't eat the meat with the blood in it. Uh, you, you're, you're not to do that. Now, that, that's interesting because that's one of the things, even after uh, we were, we were we, the, the, age, the, most, the age of the law was over and we, we began to live under the age of the grace, under the age of grace, remember that the, the Jews told the church, 
the, one of the things that you can't do, a couple of things, don't engage in sexual immorality and don't drink of the blood of animals. And so really that, that uh, I guess that's still in effect today. So uh, he says, but you shall not eat of the flesh with the life uh, that, is, that is its blood. All right, now, then verse number uh, five. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it. Now, he's talking about anyone who sheds blood now. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every living man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Of man. Whoever sheds man's blood... Uh, by men his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And so, again, the blood is sacred. So if you shed blood, uh, then uh, you're, to, you're to have your blood shed. Uh, you, we see capital punishment here being uh, instituted from the very beginning of, of uh, this new era where Noah and his family begin to populate the earth. And so God immediately gives them a law. He gives them a law that they're not to murder one another. But that law also applies to animals. Just look at that. He says, he says surely for the lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it. So not only is it the blood sacred, the human blood sacred, the blood of the animal is sacred. And so human, I mean, so animals would be held responsible too for the blood that they shed. And that's really the way the world has been set up. I mean, one animal sheds the blood of another animal, and then before long, that, animal loses, that animal's blood is shed. I remember, it wasn't long ago, uh, my cat Chico, I, I, was, I came out there one day, and he was sitting there, and he had killed a hummingbird, a beautiful little hummingbird, an innocent little hummingbird. And I was thinking, you know, Chico, one day, you, you, something's going to get you. Uh, uh, one of those big owls that's been hanging out looking at you and, and licking their chops, uh, those coyotes that come through every once in a while, sure enough, it wasn't long those, after that those coyotes killed him. So the system set up where, where, where animals shed each other's blood. That's the way it's been since the flood. But also we're told as human beings that we're, that, uh, we're not to shed each. I mean, if it's true for animals, how much more is it true for human beings that we're not to shed one another's blood? That's why even before the law was given, God institutes capital punishment uh, for murder. Uh, you, you know, God had seen what had happened on the earth in the, in the pre-flood era. Uh, he saw how Cain killed his brother Abel. He saw the anarchy that was taking place all over the world because of the violence that was on earth. And so right away, as Noah gets off of that boat with his family and they begin to populate the earth... He tells it that this time I'm going to uh, require your blood if you shed blood. And so he initiates cap- capital pun- punishment which, as a law which is really at the root of all law. Because what's it all about? It's about you shouldn't harm your neighbor. It, it, and you could take that and apply it to any of the laws because if you covet your neighbor's goods, then you're harming your neighbor. If you covet your neighbor's wife, if you commit adultery, you're harming your neighbor. And so harming your neighbor is an abomination to the Lord. And so, so he says, hey, I'm going to punish this uh, this time. Even though I'm not going to destroy the whole earth, I am going to punish 
murder, especially murder, the shedding of blood. All right, now look at verse number 7. He says, and as for you, again, he repeats this blessing. He says, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, don't be killing one another. You're to multiply. You're to fill the earth. You're not to slaughter one another. Uh, Be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his son with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant. Now, this, this is the first time we see the word covenant in the Bible. There was no covenants made uh, in uh, the pre-flood era. Now, there were some promises made. God said, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. So I guess you could call that a covenant. He told the devil that I will put enmity between uh, your seed and the seed of the woman. Now, that that was a promise. But God here makes a covenant uh, with Noah and his family. He says, as for me, behold, I establish my covenant and you with you and your family and your descendants after you. So the covenant that we're going to look at right here wasn't just established with Noah. It was established with all of his descendants. And all of us can trace our bloodline back to Noah and his family. And so this covenant is for us, too. He says in And I'm going to make it also with every living creature, that is, with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, uh, you. of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you, and this is the covenant. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. As long as history the history of this world is taking place. Before we go into eternity, as long as there is time, God is saying, I will never destroy this earth again with a flood. But if you look back at chapter 8, he doesn't even qualify it there. In chapter 8, verse 21, he says, I never again will curse the ground for man's sake, nor the last part of verse 21, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. And so this covenant says that God is not going to wipe everybody out ever again in history. He's not going to do it in history. Now, once we go into eternity, uh, everybody's not going to be wiped out. Uh, We're going to be in eternity. Every child of God's going to be in eternity, and the animals are going to be in eternity. And so so, uh, uh, this covenant is really an everlasting covenant. And, And... This is one of the reasons, when you look at this covenant, that I believe that much of what happens in the Great Tribulation is not God destroying the world. It's mankind uh, destroying itself. Uh, Jesus, when he was talking about the Great Tribulation, the Olivet Discord put it like this. He says, unless these days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Now, who shortens those days? Jesus Christ shortens those days by coming back to this earth. And so uh, uh, if God had the power to, to stop mankind from destroying itself and God didn't destroy itself, then he would break and, God, and mankind did destroy itself, then, then he would be breaking this Noah covenant because he says, I will never again allow every living creature, man and beast, to be destroyed from this earth again as long as 
you know, until we go into eternity, and then everything lives forever at that point. Now, why would God tie his hands like this? I mean, we were talking about some issues earlier when we, when we introduced the sermon, uh, some things that are going on in America. There's some, there's some things going on all over the world, a lot worse than the things that I talked about today. There's some things going on in, in, in probably some, some of our own lives that's a lot worse than anything I talked about today. We all have our issues. We all are sinners. We all deserve death. And so why would God tie his hands in such a way as to say, I will never again destroy all living creatures uh, throughout history. Why, why would he do that? Why would God do that? Because God is love. And God is rich in mercy, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. In Lamentations chapter 3, it says his mercies never end. And listen to what Moses had to say about God's mercy in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31. He says, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor utterly destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he has sworn to them. In other words, God won't forget his covenant with Israel and he won't forget his Noahic covenant. The reason he made this covenant is because he's a merciful God. He's a God of love. And if he gave any of us what we deserve, he would destroy us all. And so... so He's saying, I'm going to tie my own hands and I'm going to let people have their free will and I'm going to let them do some really wicked things and, I, and I'm not going to destroy them. Uh, and so he makes this covenant uh, with, with Noah and he says, he, he says here again, he says, uh, I will not destroy every living creature, birds or cattle or Noah and any of his descendants. Now, does that mean that God will not judge sin? Does that mean there aren't regional judgments? There aren't local floods? There aren't local disasters? No, it doesn't mean that. I mean, God certainly is going to judge sin. What it simply means is God will never again totally wipe out uh, life on earth uh, until history is over. And uh, it's time for a new heaven and a new earth. And God makes this covenant, and then the next thing he does, he puts a sign in the sky uh, which, which uh, uh, for every generation to see to remind us of this covenant. And as I said earlier, we've lost sight of what a rainbow means. We don't lose sight of the rainbow. I mean, I, how many of you, when you see a beautiful rainbow, just stop and say, wow, look how beautiful that is. And as a believer, I stop and say, wow, God is such a, you know, he's such a grand creator, and this is such a grand creation. And one of the things you can see in his creation is the rainbow. But do we really stop and remember what that rainbow is all about? And, and uh, so let's look at the rainbow now, beginning at verse number 12. He says, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations. Now notice that for perpetual generations. So does this covenant apply to us? Yes, it applies to us. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it, is, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and all the earth. So between me and every living creature. Uh, that, that, that covenant, uh, I'm going to set the sign and, 
And that rainbow is for all of us to see, every generation to see, man and beast. And it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that, uh, over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And again, looking back at chapter number 8, no disaster is going to come that's going to destroy all flesh. Every time you see a rainbow, you can say to yourself, there's never going to be a disaster again that's going to destroy all of the earth. And here, and here in Lafayette, sometimes we wonder when it starts raining if it's ever going to stop. But then we see that rainbow come out, and we know that God's remembered his covenant. And then he says in verse number 16, he says, The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant. See, that is an everlasting covenant. It is an unconditional covenant. Most of God's covenants are unconditional covenants, which simply means that he's the one responsible uh, for making the covenant uh, be fulfilled, the promise be fulfilled. No matter what we do, this is an everlasting covenant. God will not totally destroy life on earth again. No matter how bad things get, God is not going to totally destroy life on earth again. He said, this is, he said I will rem- look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on earth. That's interesting here. Again, we see this anthropomorphism. I've talked about it. It's a big word, but it simply means where God is pictured uh, with human traits so we can better understand God. And we see it twice here in verse number 15. The Lord says, I will remember my covenant. In verse number uh, 16, he says, I will look on the rainbow to remember the everlasting covenant. So we have this anthropomorphism, and it, it's almost as if God might forget the covenant. No, God doesn't forget the covenant. What God is saying is this. God is saying that when you look at the rainbow, you will be reminded that I haven't forgotten the covenant that I've made. That it is an everlasting covenant that I've made with all living creatures. Now imagine if you were here on earth shortly after the flood. If you were one of Noah's sons or one of his grandsons. And, and you were here on, and you knew all about the flood. And you could see the carnage from the flood. And you could see all this evidence from the flood. And one day it begins to rain. And it continues to rain like the rains we get here in Louisiana. And, and then all of a sudden, you begin to wonder, is this ever going to stop? You know, God flooded the earth once before. Will he do it again? And then all of a sudden, it does stop, and then the rainbow appears. And what a blessed sight that had to be to those people. I mean, we don't see it as a blessed sight, but they, I bet you they saw it as a blessed sight because they had a healthy fear of God, because they had seen God's mighty hand of judgment. And they knew what God could do if he wanted to do it. But now God, as I said... It's almost as if he's tied his hands and he says, he says I'm not going to ever destroy every, every living creature again. And if, when you look around, I mean, even shortly, we'll, we'll, when we get into you know, just a few chapters later, we look at the state of mankind just a few generations after Noah. It's become very, very wicked. And, and, and so you wonder why God doesn't, I mean, when they go to build the Tower of Babel, why God doesn't just destroy the place. The reason he doesn't destroy it is because he's made this covenant that he will never destroy uh, every living creature again. 
and he's got a purpose in that. And that purpose is his mercy. That purpose is his grace because he wishes that none should perish, that all should come to eternal life. Now, here's the sad thing. The really sad thing to me is that people today don't fear God. They don't fear God at all. I mean, I mean, if you fear God, you wouldn't make the rainbow the sign of your movement. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't fly that over the capital uh, of New Jersey. You wouldn't paint that on the White House of the United States of America. You wouldn't do that if you really feared God. And the reason people don't fear God is because God doesn't execute judgment immediately. He's going to execute judgment one day. But he's not going to execute it immediately because he's made this Noahic covenant. And so people look at the rainbow today and, and they don't see it as a sign of God's great grace. They don't see it as a sign of God's covenant uh, to never destroy things again. And the reason is, let me give you a couple of reasons. Most of, most, probably the most common reason, people look at a rainbow and they see it as a, an act of Mother Nature. They don't see it as something that, that God has given us as a sign of this covenant. You know, scientists uh, uh, can explain what a rainbow is to some degree. Uh, they can, they can uh, explain how it works, uh, uh, but they can't create one. Actually, they can create one. They don't create one. They can imitate one in a laboratory. I can imitate one in my backyard. I can take my water hose out there on a sunny day, and I can make a rainbow out there in my backyard. But I can't create the light that makes those prisms, the light that makes those prisms of colors that we see in a rainbow. Only God can do that, and they can't do that either. And, and uh, even if they could, even if they could actually make the prisms of light out of nothing, if they could make the light waves themselves, that still wouldn't mean that uh, God didn't design it. I mean, a good mechanic can go out and he can t- rebuild an engine and, and, and uh, take it apart and put it back together. Uh, but that doesn't mean he designed the engine. That doesn't mean that he created the metal that went into the engine or the parts that went into the engine. It just means that he can, he can put together something that's already been put together before. And so that's all they're doing. But, but, but most people look at it and we're, we're taught, you know, we're taught in our science books what a rainbow is all about and just, just what causes it. And very few people see it as a sign of a covenant of God. And, and, the reason is that most people, again, don't fear God, and most people don't believe in a worldwide flood. They just don't believe in a worldwide flood. Uh, they don't believe, they just can't fathom a God that would destroy every living creature on earth. I mean, especially wonderful people like us. Why would God ever do that? And so a rainbow means nothing to most people. It means absolutely nothing because, again, they have no fear of God. But none of that changes what a rainbow really means. God set the rainbow in the sky as a sign of the Noahic covenant. So next time when you see a rainbow, don't just look at it as some pretty colors in the sky. Stop and think about what that rainbow is all about. Now let's look at the last verse, verse number 17. And here's what it's all about. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on this earth. This is the sign of the covenant 
which I have established between me and all flesh that is on earth. Everybody, every animal, every person. This is the sign of the covenant that I'm not going to destroy the earth again. It is an unconditional covenant. God is not, no matter how bad things look out there, God is not going to destroy every living creature on this earth. And so when we see a rainbow, it should be a great reminder of God's mercy. But let me say this. It should also be a reminder that God judges all sin. That, and he judges every sinner, just as he did in Noah's day. And listen very carefully. His love and his mercy alone doesn't save any of us. I mean, God is full of mercy, and the, and the rainbow is a sign of his mercy. But his love and mercy alone doesn't save any of us. Look, just think about it. Before the flood, was God a God of love and mercy? Yes. But he destroyed every living creature on this earth except for Noah and his sons and those few animals that went on the ark. And so, so uh, God is a God of judgment. And he is going to judge sin one day. But he's going to wait till the end of history to do that. That's when the elements will melt and, and the earth will be destroyed in fire. Now, the great tribulation is coming. And when the great tribulation comes, most of the living creatures on this earth are going to be destroyed. Two-thirds of the population, probably two-thirds of the population of both animals and human beings are going to be destroyed during the great tribulation. But Christ is going to come back to stop that because of the promise that he's made that not every living creature will be destroyed. And why won't every living creature be destroyed? Because God is full of mercy and God is full of love. But there's a warning here. When we see a rainbow, not only should we see God's mercy and his grace, it should warn us that God does judge sin. There was a flood where God destroyed everything. There will be a time where God will destroy everything again once history is all uh, replete. Uh, in Second Peter chapter 3, we've looked at this passage before. You don't have to turn there today. But Peter warns all of those who scoff at the idea of God's judgment. They're the same people that scoff at the idea that the rainbow is a sign of God's covenant, uh, his Noahic covenant. Uh, listen to what he warns, He's, how he warns us. He says, or warns the scoffers. He says, they willfully forget that the world once perished in a great flood and that the same heaven and earth are now preserved for judgment. They're preserved for judgment. That judgment is coming. And the Lord is not slack in his promise, but is long-suffering. Not, why does he wait? Why is there a Noahic covenant? Because he's long-suffering and not willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance, that all come to eternal life. Why is God like that? Because God is love and God is mercy. And God is grace. And the rainbow is a sign of that grace and a sign of that mercy. The first verse in Judy Garland's song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, goes like this. It says, somewhere over the rainbow. I almost want to sing it for you, but I'm not going to do it. I don't want to run everybody off. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, there's a land that I once heard of in a lullaby. Somewhere over the rainbow 
way up high, there is a land uh, up high. But it's not a land in a lullaby. It's not the land of Oz. Uh, it's not the land longed for by, by immoral people, by adulterers and homosexuals and drunkards and gossips and liars, which all of us were at one time or the other. Some people just want life eternal life to be just an extension of the life we have now. And they, they long for eternity just to be an extension of what, what's going on right now in this world. No, that land somewhere over the rainbow is a land of absolute holiness. Absolute holiness. Without holiness, you will not see God, we're told in Hebrews. Without holiness, you will not see God. And only those who possess holiness will ever live in that land uh, beyond the rainbow. Go with me for a minute as we finish up here to Revelation chapter 22. And, and this is the end of the Bible. I mean, we're at the beginning of the Bible now, and the Noahic covenant is being given. Listen, listen to what God says at the end of the Bible. And, and as he's kind of summing things up, in chapter 22 of Revelation. Look at verse number 14. He says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter through the gates into the city. Then he says, tells us where the wicked are. But outside are dogs. He's not talking about literal dogs. He's talking about people who act like dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. And where is outside? Outside is another dimension we call hell. They won't be inside the heavenly Jerusalem. They won't be inside the uh, the, the heavenly Zion, this land beyond the rainbow. They'll be in another dimension we call hell. But look at, look at the list here. I mean, it says outside of the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral, murderers and idolaters, you know, and those who love and practice a lie. And we get several of these lists in the Bible and all of them are a little bit different. But they include gossips and slanderers and liars, which we get right here, and, and drunkards and, and uh, drug users. Uh, pharmaceutical is, is given in the Bible as, as a, as a uh, sin. It will get you to hell. And when you look at these lists and you're honest with yourself, even now, how many of you since you've been saved have gossiped? Any of y'all have gossiped? Oh, y'all are liars. So you're, li- you're either a liar or you're a gossip. Don't tell me you've never, or you just got saved a few minutes ago. I mean, every time I see a conversation going on, I go bust it up because I figured people are talking bad about me. I'm just teasing. But, but we're all, we, we all deserve hell. None of us live perfectly holy lives. And so, I mean, what about us? How do we 
get inside. Well, you've got to look closely at that land somewhere over the rainbow, way up high. It is the heavenly Zion, and there on the throne sits the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, the end, Almighty God. And in Ezekiel and in Revelation chapter 4, we're told that above his throne is a rainbow. A rainbow. And I would just wonder if maybe the light that we see when we see a rainbow, I'm talking about those prisms of colors, aren't emanating directly from his throne. Now, you know, certainly, you know, it might be so, it might not be so. But regardless, the message of the rainbow is still the same. It's a message of God's mercy and God's long-suffering. The fact that he wishes that none should perish, that all should come to repentance, that all should come to eternal life. And that rainbow radiates from the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. And all judgment has been given to him. And he's never going to judge this world again where, to the point where every living creature, animal and human, is killed, but he's going to judge sin, and that judgment is coming soon. But when you see that rainbow at that throne, there's two colors that stand out, sardis and emerald, green and blood red. Sardis is blood red, a blood red color, emerald is a green color. The blood red represents the blood of Christ and the green represents the life of Christ. And that's what's emanating from that throne. And that rainbow is there and it's saying that I don't want to destroy anybody. I don't want to destroy any living creature. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He died for the homosexual. I mean, that's why he holds out on the homosexual. I mean, over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, such were some of you, homosexuals and drunkards and gossips and liars, but you've been washed in the blood. You've been sanctified by the Spirit of God. You've been changed. You're a new person. And God is still holding out for every person on this earth. And that's why he's patient. Because that rainbow that emanates from his throne yells out, screams out, grace, grace and love. That's how you and I are going to get in, by his grace. Not by our own self-righteousness, not by our own uh, uh, holiness that we've produced in our own strength, but by his grace, by his blood and by his life. And we will, that ex- he's still the judge, and he's going to judge this earth. But we're going to escape that judgment. We're going to escape that judgment, not only are we going to escape that judgment, He's made it, given us the power to become sons and daughters of God and to live with him forever in perfect peace and joy. That, that's what that rainbow says. That's what the rainbow says to the whole world, not 
to just us who are saved. What he says to those who aren't saved, it says, I'm waiting on you. There's still a chance for you to get saved. And so sometimes when we want to throw in the towel on people that are living such decadent life, remember that once we too live decadent lives. And there's hope for them. And we want to pray for them. We don't want to give up on them. We want to continue to pray for them. So next time you see a rainbow in the sky, don't just look at the pretty colors. Remember that somewhere over the rainbow is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords emanating light from the rainbow above his throne to remind us of his great mercy and love that he's shown all of us and wants to show all of us. And to remind all of us who have repented and have come to Christ and have received that life and are covered by that blood, that no matter how bad things get on this earth, God still loves you. God's going to protect you. God's going to take, take care of you. And God's going to bring you home to live with him forever. That's what the rainbow says. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the great sign of the rainbow. Especially those, those two colors, Lord. The, the blood red and the emerald green. That represent your blood and your life. The blood that atones for our sin. Lord, the life that sanctifies us and makes us new creatures in Christ Jesus. Father, we just thank you for our salvation. And Lord, help us not judge those Right, those, right, those who right now are outside of your kingdom, Lord. Help us to be mindful that we once were outside your kingdom. And only by your grace have we been saved. Lord, when we see a rainbow, let us in, inspire us to know that there's still time to pray for the lost. To pray for those who don't know you. To come to you and be part of your kingdom. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you for your mercy. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.